High on Life, our really special guest, now I've got to say extra special, and I'll explain why in just a moment, is Sandy Gutman. Sandy Gutman, welcome to Lily High on Life. My pleasure, Lily. My pleasure to be here. And I call you extra because apart from being dashingly handsome and travelling the world and, and being debonair, you actually have an alter ego. I do, and uh, it's now, it's actually 40, 41 years since I've been doing this, this alter ego. And your alter ego is ostentatious. Yep, it is. And um, King of the Goyim, which is an amazing story. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons that we're doing this interview right now, um, 2022 June, is because next month you actually have a documentary that's been made about you that will be played on um, Foxtel. Yeah, it's called Fox Docos. That's the channel that it's going to. And uh, I've sold it to, I made this doco and I've sold it to them for five years. So it actually goes on this Fox Doco channel for five years. And a documentary about yourself. How did, how did you conceptualise it? And is, was, is there a reason behind doing it apart from just the publicity? Well, it had nothing to do with publicity. It had to do with putting a cap on the first 40 years of my career as I embark on the next 50. So um, this is uh, this is basically just saying this is what we did, this is what happened, and this is uh, this is the end of that period. So it's uh, that's episode. This is episode one coming to a close. So this doco is predominantly about. What I what I have done and what and what Michigas I've done and and how I've and how I've shaken things up since 1980. I'm really impressed because I've also always been a great believer in generating and imagining it. You know, Theodore Herzl, our great hero, whatever your mind. Yes, whatever your mind can conceive, you can achieve. And um, and going after and doing what you want. So I'm really excited that you not only decided to do it, but actually followed through and did it. Well, yeah. Well, I, well I, I gathered a few mates together, really. So the guy that directed is a fellow called Peter Cox, and I've been involved with him since my Phantom clip. Actually, since the, since the late 70s, I was working as a cinematographer, uh, as a camera assistant on film clips with him. We, we made clips for the Angels and the Cold Chisel, etc. in the 1970s. So he was the director then, and then I used him on, on several projects. So the Phantom Shuffle was my second single, and then we made it a long-term, a long, a long-form video with Roadshow called On the Edge, and uh, many things I've done with him. And I, I really like, we love working with him. He's a smart guy, and he loves cinemas like I do. He loves cinema like I do. And this, um, this compelling theme of. You know, doing following through and doing what you what you want to do is really important for my listeners, particularly because a lot of people think about, dream about, but never do. So even the fact that you're a comedian, um, that was um, must have been an interesting choice, especially when you started doing it. Can you talk a little bit about those early days and deciding to go into comedy? 
Sure. So, you know, I, I was at, I was at university studying dentistry because my dad, a Holocaust survivor, wanted me to have something that would always be because I would always be able to make a living. I hated I hated every second of it, and all I did was smoke marijuana at university. And then I changed to an arts course, which I liked a lot more. But that was I could see that that was a dead end. Then I did. Then I went to the film school for three years and uh, graduated as a cameraman and and uh, and a director. Actually, I didn't graduate as a, as a cameraman. I, I I did the cinematography course, but I never finished finished that. You know, I never got a diploma as a cameraman, but I got a diploma as a director. So. I, uh, I went into the film industry and I, I did I wasn't suited to that either because I was I'm not a technician so I uh, I waited till I was 20 27 and then I auditioned for a fellow called Rodney Rood at the comedy store which had just opened in Sydney and um, he he's 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 a, he's a good friend of mine still he's he's almost 80 but he uh, he carved a niche for himself with um, with you know the Dumbos really but uh, I uh, I, I, I just I, I was just looking for something to do that would be creative and uh, you know the way you the way you frame it is right you know you I mean I I just couldn't find anything that interested me and until I found this and obviously I've stuck with it for 40 years so it's something that really it's a big challenge comedy it's 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 hard work and it's uh, intellectually something that you know really it, it really inspires me because uh, <laughs> So, Sandy, that first time, did you, because you're pretty outrageous on stage, but that first time you got up, did you just get up and wing it or did you spend time writing and, and structuring? Well, well, I, well, I was working with a fellow called Billy Birmingham who's, uh, who's, who, who went on to have a huge career in comedy as the 12th man. He was just a huge, become a huge star. And... Um, He's a he was just a genius that I found, you know, just by, by chance I bumped into this guy. I actually wanted to write a movie with him, you know, a comedy movie, but we ended up him becoming my manager and my, you know, he wrote with me or wrote for me and, uh, you know, we, 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 we were together for two years and we had this huge thing that he wrote called Australiana and... Um, which was, you know, just a remarkable success. I mean, I went from, you know, a total gornish like most of your listeners, to uh, to a gigantic star. <laughs> and uh, you said it, not me. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm only mucking around. I'm only mucking around, everybody. Hello, how are you? How are you? How are you going? Everybody, you keep us there. You're allowed to be. You're allowed to ship nachos from yourself. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Not a problem. Yeah, yeah. So the was did you do the Australiana stuff that first time, or was it something? No, no, else? no, no. There was a, there were a few lines like uh, you know how far can it, does a ding go, or how far you know exactly what does a didgeridoo. I had a few lines like that, and then I just had a whole lot of other stuff, and he gave me a few things, and together I put a, put an act together of about twenty minutes, and uh, I just did that for the for the first two years until Australiana was fully formed, and then we had a record company come down there which is all covered in this documentary. A record company came down and saw me, uh, actually a guy called Martin Fabini, who is actually half Jewish, his father's Hungarian, but he doesn't want to know about uh, Yiddish guy very much. He only wants to know about, uh, you know, being a groovy record producer. So he, he didn't really, he didn't really give a shit about being Jewish, but uh, still, still doesn't. But um, the father was a bit of an intellectual. His name was Fabini. Uh, you might know. He's, he had a, he was a, he had a, a book, book shop or book. He was a bookseller. 
It's quite well known in Melbourne anyway, but anyway. I'm going to share something that very, very few people know. When I turned 40, I was living in Los Angeles and uh, the comedy store up on Sunset is the iconic place to do comedy. And I actually had my debut comedy stint at the comedy store oh, on my fortieth birthday, um, and so was that was that when we met? We met in Los Angeles. We that, did meet up in Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah. This was a little bit before that, but it was well, a once on only. How did you How did you go? Well, it was a once only because it is one of. A, I've hosted my own TV program, live audiences, everything, but comedy is one of the toughest things to do. So, just very quickly before we leave my debut. Um, Everybody else performing was a big black guy with um, pants falling down below their yeah. bum yeah. because yeah. it was my birthday. I was dressed up as a Jewish princess and yeah. um, I'm a little heavy. I'm not skinny. And yeah. um, and I got this great spot right in the middle and this black guy started talk, making really rude comments about fat girls and sex and fat girls and I was supposed to go on right after him. So I just got on. I forgot got everything I left everything I was supposed to talk about and just commented on him and, and his act so that was the start and end of my well, career that's, that's, that's gutsy <laughs> I, I auditioned for Mitzi Friedman one day in, the, in there and I my, my first line was I've worked a lot of toilets but this is the biggest one and she said get out of my place get out of this room you never work in here again you never work in the industry again get out you <laughs> fucking whatever it was don't and, uh, you so love I, LA <laughs> Well, I had a great time in America, and I've just been in America for the last four weeks. I had, I have, I, lo I love America. I am American. I was born in New York. That's why I speak, you know, a little bit like a New Yorker. <laughs> uh, but uh, my, uh, my, because my dad, my parents met in New York. They had a shidduch in New York, and they, uh, they married in New York. So very nice. So you were actually born in. I was born in uh, the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Ah, right. In 1954, and uh, while well, there was a St. Patrick's Day parade outside the window, as my <laughs> mother used to say, it was a St. Patrick's parade. There was a see whatever outside. It's the 17th of March. Of uh, it was at St. St. Patrick's Day. Why would they have come to Australia when everybody was trying to get out? Was trying to well, get I to think, America? Well, that, that's how my that's how my father felt because he loved New York and he he loved he loved the cultural aspects of New York and the fact there was I mean the 1950s New York was a very happening place you know so yeah and. Uh, she well, he was a Holocaust survivor. His brother lived in New York. They became, they you know, he, he came and lived with his brother for a little while until he could get himself set up. And my mother, my mother was a survivor because she left Poland just at the last minute and came came to Australia because my grandfather had a brother here. And then she went on some scholarship to the night to the United Nations. She she's a pretty bright woman, my mother, and uh, she. Uh, Suppose by whatever it was, they they met and um, they married at the Hotel Brewster in, in Manhattan, and that kid one year later was born, and uh, you know was uh, you know was um, and then uh, then she said her father said he wanted her here, I guess you know. Ah, okay, and my father, interesting. My father came. My father, well, my father came to Australia and didn't didn't like it. I'm sure he didn't like it his whole life because you know it was a, was basically a, a cultural desert, and 
and, and from many other aspects. Uh, so he just started schlepping watches around to country towns like I do with the jokes. And um, <laughs> But he was a smart man because he knew to have a happy life, you have to have a happy wife. Well, that was one thing, but... Uh, I don't, I don't think that that, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that made much difference. I, I don't think he was happy in Australia. Mm. He was, he was, a, he was, a, he was a very handsome guy, and he, and he, he, um, he was a snappy dresser, and he came from a very wealthy family and lodge, and everything fell apart, you know, when the Nazis came and he, they destroyed all my family in Treblinka, and um, so he, he was a, he, he was a tragic figure, my dad. So the Holocaust was always in the background in within your family as you were growing up. It was 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 in, in a very in a very uh, a very strong sense because he would scream at night, you know, and he would you know remember Bergen Belsen in his dreams. Wow. And Bergen Belsen was a terrible place right then at the end of the war, but that's where he was liberated by the British and taken to Sweden. Um, and uh, so he lived in Sweden actually for a few years. Wow! Too. Did he talk to you about it openly? Did he, he both- talked very openly to me about it yeah, all, all through? And uh, I was I was very inquisitive. Unlike my brother, who who wasn't that interested in in it, and is interested in moving on, what well, he became he became the uh, the head of Westfield, the CEO of Westfield, with Mister Louis, and uh, so um, my, my 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 father was very open with me. I I, I would just I, I I really had to know what these people looked like, these perpetrators. I had to I I could I could conceive of it in my head, but I couldn't really realistically. You know, imagine anybody behaving the way those people did. So, I just wanted to know everything. And did you? Uh, do you remember what age were you? Very young, me in your teens. Uh, because my follow-up question to that is: Do you remember discussing it with your friends or other kids your age? I don't think. I think. I think through my teenage years, I um, I wasn't as. Firstly, I, I grew up. Shomer Shabbat, so it was. Um, well, Good boy. We, we were a religious family, and we kept the Chagim, and we kept. I was in shul more than I was in therapy, you know? and um, <laughs> I uh, I spent uh, all my life with with Yiddishkeit until the age of about seventeen, when I started to smoke marijuana and rebelled a bit. I think so. I got. Uh, I mean, I, I, you now, you, now I'm not. I don't go to shul at all really much because. I think I've had enough of it all. It was just too much. It was so much. Sandy, what did the marijuana do for you when you started smoking it? Well, I think I think you know all of us. I mean, on a more fundamental level, I think we. I think all of all of this generation. I think we wanted to blend in a little bit, you know, and uh, that was a sort of a, a conduit to blending in, you know. At university, you know, magic mushrooms and, and LSD and everything as the hippie thing happened. Well, I think we all wanted to be, you know, the yarmulke went and the, you know, tefillin went and, the, you know, was replaced by marijuana and, you know, just uh, Michigas, you know, rebelliousness and uh, Woodstock, whatever. So. so it was more about that than it was what it actually did to your mind and body? <laughs> Well, uh, no. Well, I've, of course, I, I look. I just laughed and laughed and laughed, particularly with uh, hashish. I just thought that was the best thing ever. I still think it was the best thing ever. I just would, with my friends, I would just laugh all day. And, and uh, 
did it so did it actually affect your relationship with your parents because you know you can keep things hidden and it didn't no of, of course of course it affected everything i mean they you know he didn't know what was going on with me one day i was a bible champion and the next day i was a marijuana hippie you know and you know running around with artists and you know wanting to be an artistic but what do you want sandy but what do you want like screaming going crazy you know absolutely crazy because the more the, the more the older i got the more the holocaust came back to him so of course and he was afraid for you more than anything well, he else was he was afraid he was he, he just didn't know what was going on with me you know i, I was um but in again in retrospect it was all part of the formation of a human being, you know, it was all part of that. There was all that stuff mixed together, you know, all the Bible studies, all the Talmud, all the, all, all, you know, yeshiva and, and, and go to synagogue and all of it was part of the formation of a human being. And to be honest, it's a great, it's a great, you know, it's a, they're, great, they're all great components because they've all been useful in, a cre- in this creative life. Absolutely. Everything you go through that you can't you can't do anything wrong in your life ever because you don't know what the alternative would have been if you'd done something different. Well, that's right, but then you know, when you come from mixed up people, I mean these people were completely tamished, you know. One day they're in they're living in luxury in lodge in you know, and the next day they're in a they're in the you know, in transit or in a in a cattle car or in a in a concentration camp lifting giant stones or I mean their whole life was completely turned upside down that whole concept is is something that is just unimaginable even though we know the details of it but you did eventually get married yourself and have children yeah was well, that- I, 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 um, I, I didn't get, I didn't meet, I met this girl in Perth who was a non-Jew, she was a shiksa, and um, her name was Emma, and uh, she was a beautiful girl, and um, I just thought, here's a chance to have a family, and she was, she was into converting, so she did a full Orthodox conversion. Were your parents oh, happy? Hey? Were you, did it mend relationships or did it make your parents a little calmer? Well, my father, my father died before, before all of this. My oh. father died. He would never have tolerated me marrying out. And but, your mother? Uh, my, mo- my mother was very accepting, but she, was, she came to Australia. That her parents were not particularly uh, orthodox, practising, not really. I mean just in a sort of a, a tokenist way. So she didn't really know much about it. I don't think she could read Hebrew. Or, she wasn't really really that. So when this girl came, and she was a lovely girl, and so my mother got on very well with her. She actually, in fact, went and worked as her assistant at the Jewish Board of Deputies for quite a while. And now she works as Cheryl Sandberg's assistant at, at the top of Facebook. Wow. So, and she's going with, she's, she's going with Cheryl. <laughs> when I think about it, it's amazing. Oh. Anyway, when I think about that, because Cheryl's just left, where's she? Going? Yeah, well, she's got, she hasn't left yet. She's leaving in September, but when she leaves, Emma's going with her. Wow, <laughs> that's just so amazing. Yeah, and, you know, Cheryl, you know, Cheryl's a practicing Jew, and uh, I did not but, know that she's a practicing Jew. Oh yeah, yeah, and my wife, my wife, my ex-wife knows a lot about it because we practiced you know i wasn't i wasn't very good at you know at that time i I was very lax in the whole thing but uh 
in my in my in my forties, I think I just dropped the dropped the whole thing with it. I don't know what happened. Something happened, but um, and uh, so, but but she knows all about that stuff. So there, she's going to be living in she's going to be working in Cheryl's house in uh, what in, Sil- in Silicon Valley. It's <laughs> <laughs> an amazing story, really. And your girls, you had two daughters. Well, I've, I've got two daughters, and uh, they're both. And they're both in America right now. Did you help raise them? Was it 50-50? Oh, yeah. it- no, no, of course, of course. I've been I've been incredibly involved with my children. The the point is, if you're not, then you're gonna have big tourists. So I was I was there when we were married and I was there when we were divorced and I'm there every, you know, for everything for them. And so uh, and so they've. Do they have dual? I'm just curious. Do they have dual citizenship? They don't have dual citizenship. I have dual citizenship. But they've been to Australia. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. They they, they, they lived here for all that time, and then she moved to America. She married at a, a second time. She married a pilot from Delta. Is a born again Christian, I think, and uh, so um, they lived in San Francisco with her, and now they live in one. One, one of them lives, you know. They, yeah, they're, they're in live, America. They're both in uh, America. Yeah. So, Sandy, having lived your childhood with your parents, and then having had your own children, that you were very aware you wanted to raise very differently. In hindsight. What do you? What's your insight as to raising kids? Well, the, uh, look, there are there are many things, but the most important thing is unconditional love and non-judgmental. I've tried to be non-judgmental. Just to, I've tried to be kind and generous to my kids, and uh, you know, probably sport my kids, but not really because they're both incredibly hardworking and they both just graduated. Uh, They've both got a Bachelor of Arts, and uh, they'll both go on to be very successful in their in their lives. So, mm. I, I, look, I just I just think the more time you spend, and I spend a huge amount of time with my children. I mean, you've just got to be there all the time for them, whatever ups and downs and whatever. Not judgmental, you know. I know the drug thing. I know I know the alcohol thing. Did I they go alcohol. through the drug, or did they go oh, through well, that? They, 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 they're probably still going through it, but uh, but uh, you know, it's that's that's what happens these days, and. Uh, you know, our generation, we kicked it off and, you know, they're the recipients of that. So, Sorry, I've got to throw in just a dash of politics. Um, would you be happy with, with them learning about that they weren't either a boy or a girl when they were three, four or five years old, if that were part of their curriculum? Well, uh, well, I, well I think they're... Um you know they're they're very they're very up with everything. I mean they know what's going. No, no. On. But as a parent, is that would you have also indulged that kind of woke educationalism? Ah, uh, you know. Well, I, look, if you want to go into the whole woke thing, I think it's 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 Michigan. You know, it's completely Michigan. It's gone far too far. And it's like it's basically it's a it's it's for the victims of the world to get their revenge. So fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. I mean, we've been victims too, and we you know we 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 just stood up. And and went, got on with it. But uh, now it's the victim's whinging thing, which is... Uh, That's an interesting perspective. Well, it's, it's fair enough, but it's, it just gets too much. In my business, people are telling me what I can say and what I can't say on stage. It's just ridiculous. I mean, in my case, I've never been... My, my, my shows have always been socially conscious. And as a Jew, I understand prejudice as well as anybody. So it's... it's My, my shows have always been... I mean, I, I, I take... I take the piss out of the Muslims or I take the piss out of this or that but there's always a point to it and uh, 
you know, it, it, it's it's not just gratuitous comedy. It's never been gratuitous. It's, it's always been lifting the bar. And if pe- people look at my, my body of work, a lot of the people at the ABC who wouldn't let me, you know, in the door, they will see that, you know, I've, I've done stuff, a lot of stuff about reconciliation with the Aboriginal people who are basically are the lost Jewish tribe. And man, ma- many, 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 many issues I've dealt with that are, that you know, Pauline Hanson and all these other idiots. I, I've, I've dealt with so many things that are very woke, but uh, suddenly they've got the, they've got, the, you know, the, the uh, you know, the woke is, woke belongs to them now. So Is that, is that important as you're writing now and going into the next stage? Do you take all of that into consideration? Are you afraid to? No, no, I'm not, I'm certainly not afraid. I, I just, I, I, I like, I temper everything with, uh, with what's going on, but I, I, I don't shy away from stuff. And I, like Ricky Gervais, who I think is about the best comedian around in the world right now. Yay, Ricky. <laughs> Well, he's he's clever and he doesn't compromise and he pushes it right to the limit and they they all hate him all those you know all those woke people all hate him but he's he's fantastic he can he can talk about woke and be very funny about it which is a, that's a, that's a real skill he's obviously a very smart guy so I like him and I like all his stuff I like what he does <laughs> I like that I like the fact that he's a working class boy who's done I mean, he's made hundreds of millions of dollars and he's uh, good he's, on him. You know, Hey, good on him, exactly. Um, Sandy, when people first meet you or when you're meeting people, um, and I'm asking this question both for people who know who you are and what you do as well as people that don't, do they just expect you to be funny? Well, um, look, any comedian is, I suppose, expected to be funny. And and the, the pressure's on, particularly on television, you know, when you do those... I've done so many of them, hundreds of interview programs where, you know, you've got an extra added pressure of having to be funny, not only, you know, articulate, but funny as well. So that's that applies as, on a personal level and it applies at a professional what level. What about when you're dating? Well, dating... Um, because I've been out with a few comedians who are yeah. who have done okay, so some of them are pretty well known. And yeah. really, no offence, but I've found some of the most boring people in the world. Well, that's true. I, well, and also, most comedians are not funny at all in real life. I think I don't. I don't really understand that. You know, I don't. I don't slave around making a one line like somebody like Jerry Seinfeld, who I find incredibly unfunny. Those sort of people. They spend every second working out on, you know, where the where the dots going to go, where the commas going to go. My humour evolves and predominantly on stage. I, you know, all my stuff, all my best gags come from on stage, dealing with the public and just mucking around, and you know, like because I get on a certain level, I get on a certain, you know, neurological level that it just stuff starts to inspire. I get inspired on stage. I don't really get inspired in front of a piece of paper. So most comedians are not funny mm. and most comedians are boring and I don't spend time with many comedians. There's one comedian in America who I've spent a lot of time with. His name's Barry Diamond and he's just the funniest guy, I think, in the world. And he, he was good friends with Robin Williams and he, he sort of looked up to Robin, and I, but I think he's so much better than Robin, so... I must say, actually, Sandy, um, we've spoken just personally over coffee just two or three times. But what I've found with you is that you're so 
interesting in yourself, your your, your passion and your worldview and the things that you're generally interested in, involved in, um, actually give you a very charismatic personality, if I can put it well, that way. Well, that's very kind of you. But I, look, I, I, um, I've always been curious. I'm just a curious person. So I know about cinema. I know about literature. I know about the arts. I know about. I've travelled incredibly widely in the world. I, I've, you know, met incredible, you know, very, very well-known people. I've, you know, I've just hung around with very yes. smart people. And uh, I look at all. I guess it rubs off. But, but those are the people that I seek out too. People who are. You know, you know, fully rounded. Yep. And when you look back on your upbringing and the, and the Jewish education, particularly, I mean, winning a Bible contest, not just being entered into it. Well, only did... in Australia. Only in Australia. <laughs> yeah. I didn't win in Israel, but I, I won here. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. The, it's more. Do you? take what you learnt in those early days, does Bible wisdom actually hold you in good stead these days? Well, I think, look, I think, it's all, like I said to you before, it's all a part, it's a compartment, you know, they're all compartments of your personality. They're all things that add to your personality. So I, my children, for instance, they don't really know what they want to do. So I said, okay, well, go and do an arts course. And then, you know, through that, you'll find other things. And that's that's what's happening. You know, they're, they're both finding themselves through, you know, they, 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 they really have both applied themselves very, very strongly to their to their studies, and out of that will come something else. So it's one, all these things add to your, you know, your general who you are, and their and their connection to Judaism. Well, at all? well, I, I think that whole generation is running away. I mean, there was there was a thing in the the other day in the paper about the Christians, how the Christians, like fifty percent of Christians, don't go to church anymore. And I mean, it's happening with the Jews too, all over the world. They don't just they don't really they don't really want to go to shul. They don't really they. My children say. I don't think there's a God or this or this or that. I mean, that these things go in, in cycles, though. You yeah, know, and, absolutely. And anti-Semitism is there to help us become reformulated so <laughs> and, you know, re reconnect. Well, that's what happens. The German, the German Jews, you see, we didn't want to know about Judaism at all. They were very happy to assimilate and, 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 and yes. you know, Christianity. To, you know, Mendelssohn, for instance, the great composer, converted to Christianity. And so many Jews just forsook and then they got to the gas chambers and they all suddenly remembered the Shamaras, you know, they were dying of carbon monoxide poisoning or whatever. So, Unfortunately, very, very true. When I first went to live in LA, I didn't mean to, anyway, long story, but yeah. what I found was that I was never, I went to an Orthodox school, went to Bess Rifka in Melbourne, oh, part yeah. of Chabad, all of that, yeah. but we were never religious at home. We came, oh, out, of, we came out of Russia and so we knew we were Jewish because we were told, but that's about it. But when I came to LA, I started going to synagogue, which I didn't really do that much here. And what I found was that the rabbi's sermons were very much what the popular culture was in LA. All of that. Um, which, which show was that? Which show was that? 
Oh, I went to a different shul every week look because the rabbis... Where, where, whereabouts? In Beverly Hills? In Beverly Hills. So right. um, it so, was... So Chabad, different Chabad shuls? Oh, there are about 20 shuls just yeah. in the Pico no, Robinson no, I know. Well, area. I went, to them all. I went to them all too. Yeah, and they had good chulant for lunch if you went yeah, on good Saturday. Chulant, yeah. But the rabbis themselves, you know, I was reading Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus and, you know, all of these new age books and I'd go to shul and the rabbis would talk about it as part of the parasha of the week and make it relevant to life today. Yeah, well, that's what they do. And but it but it's what they do, but it's the truth because it is like there is very few very little that's new in the world. And so the stories from the Bible and the lessons that we get out of them are in fact relevant today. Very much so, and they well, but just re, just connecting that with you know life today. That's their job, you know, so to make you feel, you know, you're part of something. But you know, you know like I found a lot of shuls in LA, like particularly Chabad, they're full of um, Baltashuvniks, if you know what that is. Yes. And, you know, people are people who've had huge cocaine issues or whatever, and or their children are producers or directors or whatever, and they've they've been neglected, and so they they're looking for something in Judaism. And so it was it was really. Was a shul full of people who um, who knew very little about Yiddishkeit and just wanted to be saved. I think. But they so, were welcomed in. But it was amazing. They were welcomed in. But I didn't feel I didn't feel uh, like that at all, and I felt I felt a little bit out of place. In I still I, I still feel like that in lots of these shuls. Of, you know, but you know, good on good on Chabad for bringing bringing Yiddishkeit to the to to the to the to the Nebuchs. And I'm sure you were connected with the High Center in LA. The Schwartzes, um, the Schwartzes. No, no, I was. I went to. The, I went to that shul on Olympic um, with that yes. rabbi. He, he was. He was. He, he was accused of sexual issues and. Uh, yes, yes, went I don't there know too. You, know, <laughs> that, you remember that guy? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, but the high center. But the high center, which is was also part of a Chabad, and Schwartzy yeah. was this hippie from the sixties that became this amazing rabbi that brought people together. But every yeah. year at the Cannes Film Festival, they have a Shabbat dinner, and they come. One of somebody sponsors them, and they they have this, which is getting bigger and bigger, and and it brings That's in the Jews that are in the film industry, yeah. some of them who for the first time have met a rabbi, but who were born Jews. Jewish, so yes, God bless Chabad. Where's, the, where's that at the Carlton or something, is it? No, Schwartzy worked out of his home. He died just a few years ago. I'll get you a copy of his book because it's hilarious as well as interesting. Schwartzy in the High Center. And now his son runs it. Um, and and so they're continuing it. But these annual uh, Shabbat dinners at Cairns are, are amazing. It's been more than 20 years, so all really good. Yeah, and um, so your new direction, and I'd actually like to propose one of your new directions for your work is that you uh, take the weekly parsha and uh, Im- and and do a comedy set for each I, I, week I, look, of parsha. I don't think that's going. I think that's going to happen. But uh, <laughs> I don't but, either. But no, no. But uh, but no. But I look. I, I love Yiddish God. I love everything about it, and I love the Jewish people and. Particularly on mass rather than individually, I think Woody Allen said that. 
it for the first time. But uh, I, I just, I, I, I fear for the Jewish people constantly and I fear for all these people who run, run around, want to make deals with everybody and and Joe Biden with all this stupid stuff with Iran and with, I mean, to, they, they, these gangsters, they just want to destroy us and, you know, you you, you got to take them seriously. And I, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm very unhappy that, Netanyahu was gone, I must say. I'm very I I feel a bit the same way, so it'll be interesting. But also, um, what direction are you looking at taking for the next 50 years? For the next 60 years, um, I'm looking at... Uh, well, I'm, I just want to keep doing this stand-up thing because I really enjoy it. And uh, I'm, I am working on two movie ideas. I've got a, a couple of ideas from movies and uh, we, we are we are developing them already. I mean, whether I whether I will direct them or I will be in them, or I'm not sure yet. But uh, when I saw Ben Stiller the other day and I realised that you know, don't need to be much of a person to be a movie star because <laughs> you could have fit it into my pocket. But... Uh, um, and he's a director, he's a writer-director, you know, comedian. Um, do you think but, you'll do uh, it here or in America? No, no, well, I, I, there, there are a couple of ideas that I want to do in Australia. I mean, it's, it's easier. I mean, Australia's much easier, you know, in terms of getting things together. But we, we're very competent. I, I was listening to Mandy Walker today, who, who was the cinematographer on Baz Luhrmann's latest picture, the Elvis picture, and uh, she was just talking about the competence of Australian cinematographers, which is my first love too. I love, I love cinematography, and I, I've, yes. I know all those, I know all those people, all those camera people, and uh, and I know Baz very well too. And I, you know, his, his film's number one in America now, and uh, number one in Australia. So, you know, uh, we we can do lots of things here and 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 have them you know be successful all over the place but uh i've been a stand-up comedian and a a, you know you know a comedian on the road in australia for for 40 years and i've I've tried a lot of it in america but it's much more of a challenge in america for it's highly competitive in america and uh is is there a real difference in the audiences and the way you present the material well, I think for me there is a there's a difference because I feel very confident in Australia about the Australian psychology, and uh, that's where I where, what I utilise the most. I just go in, I go right in there, I go in hard in there, and uh, you know, lots of them don't like it, and lots of them lots of them love it. So, I mean, I, I started off as a legend, you know, for us for, for the Aussies with Australiana. It's the biggest selling single in the country's history. So, oh, you had some brilliant. Stuff. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very, you know, I can really do it. I, I know how to talk to Aussies. You know, I really, I've got the damn. So, uh, you know, I've got that, and plus, plus, uh, you know, I've had a great time entertaining Australian Jewish audiences too. I've had a, I've had a wonderful time doing that because they really get all the subtlety that is uh, that that is inherent in the relationship between the Aussies and the Jews and the, all the immigrants and the Greek, the Greek community. So I got all, I've got all, I've got every accent, you know, down for everybody in Australia. And uh, I, I feel very comfortable here. And I also love the lifestyle here. Although I had a beautiful time in LA just now, I just felt absolutely terrific. But I was out the four seasons for four weeks. So oh, probably. you poor darling. <laughs> I guess somebody's got to do it. Otherwise I'd have to close down. Down. Well, but, that's right. But I think I kept them going. Spot. I actually think I kept them going, particularly in the in the restaurant, because they were so. The Mexicans were really very appreciative that I was there. Gracias, buenos dias, Mr. Gutman. Buenos dias, <laughs> Mr. Gutman. Hello, Mr. Gutman. <laughs> I think it was the twenty percent every day, but whatever it was, 
it was uh, it was a great experience. But you know what? When I I was in LA for twenty six years, really went Goodness. for six months, turned into twenty six years, yeah, and yeah. I was very hesitant about coming back to Melbourne. But I came back for family reasons. So you know, it was it was not well. Of course, everything in life is a choice. But what I found is that Melbourne is amazing. The oh, yeah. food, the restaurants, the food culture is better than LA. Dare well, I say look, so. look, well, but the Melbourne thing really started in the fifties, you know, with uh, Merca Mora and you know the Jews coming here. You know, <laughs> the whole Mora family they 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 really added to the gastronomy of that city and uh, I don't and know the that history. The, yeah, the culture. You don't know them? No. Well, the more they had the. But he had the gallery, the Tolano Gallery in, uh, ah. in St. And he was an art, art dealer. And uh, Philippe Moore is the film director. Who is I was more Sherehazad, Ackland Street. Oh, right, right. Well they, well, they weren't very Jew. They weren't so Jewish, but they were, they were, they were, they were both Holocaust survivors. Philippe's father, Georgie, was in the French Resistance with Marcel Marceau. Oh, my God, I wish I'd known that because I often went to Tolano's and loved it. And yeah, well, well he was living on North Havenhurst near the, near the Chateau Marmont, Philippe. You know, you don't know who he is, Philippe Mora? I had not heard of him until he's an Australian now. film. He's an Australian film director who made um, Mad Dog Morgan in the 1970s right. with Dennis Popper and became it was a, and then he had a huge career in America. Mm. He made Brother so, Brother Spare a Dime. Anyway, whatever. So, yeah. so having lived to this stage, which you have now, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Summarise what you've learnt through all of that time and what you're now aware of that came out of all of your experiences. Well, look, I think the main thing was that I was very apprehensive about following a career like this, you know, an artistic career, even though I pushed for it. My dad always said, we have no talent in the family, Sandy. That is not talent, <laughs> nobody. So... So that was a, that was that was a bit of a kick, but uh, he did he did enjoy when I brought the girls home and just threw it on the bed, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars from one night's work, you know, in the in the early eighties. But uh, I think the, I think I think getting the confidence to be who I am, and and now I'm you know I'm I'm very, I'm very happy being, being I'm very happy in my own skin, I guess, and uh, I've had a great a terrific life now. I'll be forty next next year, and. Uh, mm. It's been a wild ride and uh, I'm really looking forward to keep on doing it, you know, to keep continuing, you know, with that, you know, whatever. Excellent. And so I look forward to the next documentary in uh, another maybe five, six years' time. Another, yeah, the, the sequel. But anyway, for the people out there, it's July the 17th. It's Fox Stockers, which is a channel of Foxtel. It's 8.30pm, and then it will be streaming for, for four or five years on Foxtel. So it's on their biography thing, and it's, it's is a really Is there a website? Is, huh? is there a website um, there's a web, I think, the, well, I, there's the Foxtel website. I, I don't have a particular website for it, but um, I don't even have the cover art yet, but but it's, but it's up on IMDb now. It's just gone up on IMDb. So. No worries. So if there's a, is a website, I'll include it in my um, summary. Uh, well, you can, put my, you can put my website, which is ostentatious.com. But, of course. Uh, but that, but that's not uh, that's not specific. Though. That just details everything that I've done, you know. So also, if people want to have a look at Wikipedia because that, there's a lot of stuff up there about my. No worries. Ostentatious.com yeah. actually is a, is a really good one. Who came yeah. up with the name? Um, well, actually, the name came up came from Billy Birmingham, 
who uh, his well, wordplay was his, his his thing. So uh, ostentatious was ostentatious from Austin, Texas was the was the initial <laughs> thing, and I was a little bit I spoke a little bit like that, but it quickly evolved into you know this. Uh, Australia, this Australian who was very circumspect about the country and uh, was really uh, was really it's it's really been a story of an observer like like I guess like Groucho you know like like the Marx Brothers mm-hmm. I mean their thing was all about standing on the sidelines looking at the upper class and and you know what Margaret Dumont was representative of that and. Uh, uh, that's the silliest thing I've ever hated the man through a four-year-old kid and they he was glad to get rid of them. So that, that, that was their thing. Their thing was, and that's what we do as Jews, I think. We always, we're not really accepted, so we just, we take the piss. And uh, and by taking the piss, we get more accepted because they laugh, they, they laugh at it and then they put us in concentration camps. <laughs> And we get comfortable in our own skin. So hopefully we get better and better at avoiding that, especially now. Well, we get comfortable in our own skin. But the thing is not to get too comfortable because we'll always be reminded of who we are and that we don't, we're not really wanted, you know. But that's okay. I don't, it doesn't worry me. I've, <laughs> I've, had an, I've had a bit of a shot at, you know, back at them. And Thursday we're going to Germany to poison the water supply in 15 cities with a few mates of ours. So. <laughs> Okay, Sandy, up to that point, it's been a really great pleasure. It's been a great pleasure. Great talking to you. Thank you very 